0: Beloved, among the rich songs, hymns that we just joyfully sang together, Uh, the first one, let the nations be glad, the third, and I don't know if it's the third stanza, I don't know how the stanza chorus, how that all works, it's the third paragraph in the devotional here, but the words read as such, under the umbrella again of let the nations be glad. Through the ages gone before, through the trial and the sword, many saints and martyrs conquered, though they died and the world would look at those words and say what's up with that how can that be how can you say they conquered though they died how could that flow from let the nations how could the nations be glad with something like that Uh, we know from our perspective with our understanding of the hope and the promise of the good word of God that there is hope there is resurrection hope The reality is, though, in the economy of God, in the providence of God, one man or woman lives by faith. Another man or woman dies by faith. This has always been the case from the Garden of Eden uh, with righteous Abel through the Old Testament, Old Covenant saints in the nation of Israel through church history. Uh, We can even think... In the medieval times, we can think of the reformers, we can think of the pre-reformers, groups of men and women that held on to the truth, and many of whom even died for the truth that they held on to. The Bogomils, the Petrobusians, the Albigenses, the Waldensians, and there will be a quiz after the service to see who can (laughs) repeat those. Uh, These were men and women that held to the truth of the gospel, that held to An understanding of the solas, what's been called the solas of the Reformation, of being saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ, of Scripture being the only authority over the child of God, of the ministry of all believers. that. There is no spiritual distinction between the laity and the clergy. All are one together in Christ, and the list could go on. And for many of these doctrines, again, men and women died for that faith. Even if you're familiar, for example, with the Fox's Book of Martyrs, the Waldensians, for example, some 400 years, suffered some of the most horrific, torturous deaths as a result of their faith. That has always been the case. There have always been, there were then, and there are even now, true believers languishing in prison or starving in concentration camps because of their faith. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Our passage this morning are verses 35 through 38. We're continuing our 10,000 foot flyby of biblical history, beginning in verse 32 through 38. Where last week we looked in verse 32, the final litany of specific names that the author of Hebrews brings out of men of valor. Men who are valorized in the Old Testament by God in Scripture for our blessing and as an example for us. So men of valor. And then in verses 33 and 34, great acts of valor on the part of some of these men, other unnamed men and other unnamed women as well. And what we see in verse 35 at the beginning is we move from acts of valor to women of valor. And then in the middle of verse 35, and that's the, my grandson, the men of valor, man of valor, future man of valor that I love so much. Sorry, I didn't mean my beloved daughter-in-law, but I just, I love him. I love, I love my family. Okay, back on task here. Uh, women of valor and then martyrs of valor from the middle of verse 35 and four. There is a significant, massive, startling shift in the middle of verse 35, when we move from the great triumphs of faith to the great tribulations, trials, and even tortures of faith, there are times of prosperity and there are times of want. Some live by faith, some die by faith. Again, the passage that we have before us, verse 35 through 38, but I'll begin reading in verse 32 to take this in its entirety. This is the word Of God, Hebrews 11 and verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Again, we move from men of valor, acts of valor, to women of valor, and then martyrs of valor. And what we see here is that we are reminded that God didn't write this. When we take this magnificent chapter 11, the whole list of the stellar examples, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, all the way through, by faith Rahab, and then the other examples, that we understand that God did not write this. The original author, the author, pastor, preacher that wrote to a group of Jewish Hebrew Christians to encourage them to stay true to the course, to finish well, to not neglect so great a salvation, to not shrink back to destruction, that God had the same purpose for you and for me to hold on to the truth that we would finish well, that he didn't write chapter 11 merely to set forth these men and women as examples, but rather that we would learn to live by faith so that when the time comes, we will die by faith. We will die in faith. So first here at the beginning of verse 35 is the women of valor. And again, in the middle of verse 35 is this tremendous shift from triumphs to torture and tribulation. But what he does here at the beginning of verse 35 is the author saves the best for last. After this list of these heroic, amazing acts of valor, of putting four armies to fight, of escaping the edge of the sword, of quenching the power of fire. In many of these cases, the military examples to be sure, we understand that God is sovereign. We understand that every good gift comes from our Father above and that God is responsible for all the good outcomes. But having said that, many of those great heroic triumphs of faith can be attributed at the human level to some contribution from man. But When it comes to raising life from the dead, that is solely, singularly attributed to God and to God alone. Only God can defeat death. Only God has the power of life over death. So, the author saves the best for last. The most striking example of the power of faith in the examples of these women of valor. Look at the text, the beginning of verse 35. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. Now, for the original audience, they would understand, and we would understand if we do know our Old Testament, that he is referring to two specific examples from the Old Testament. Turn for a moment, if you wish, to 1 Corinthians chapter 17. There are two examples that he gives us here. One is a poor Gentile widow of a man named Zarephanath. The other example is a wealthy Jewish Shunammite woman. So the first example is this poor Gentile widow of Zarephanath. In 1 Kings 17, we are introduced again to Elisha at Tishbite in verse 1. In verse 9, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and says in verse 9, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. But the rub, the the crux of the story that the author of Hebrews cites begins in verse 17. Now, it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And he said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. Now, in a moment, I'll read verse 24. And verse 24 is a massively Key important verse for me and it 's a great go to verse I mean if you think of the context, this poor widow's son was dead, and he has been raised back to life he 's brought been brought back to her, and so what would the first words of her be what would she Think of uh, just the praise and the thanksgiving, my son, my son, my son. But what's fantastic is where this godly woman that is the example of faith, this woman of valor that the author of Hebrews that God sets before you and me in chapter 11 is where her attention and focuses in verse 24. She responds back to Elijah and says, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Beloved, this is a fantastic go-to verse, 1 Kings 17, verse 24, about the purpose and intent of miracles. Miracles in Scripture are to indicate three things, to indicate that new revelation is coming, that God is going to speak or is speaking, and it's to authenticate the message and to authenticate the messenger. So again, look at what this woman says. She says, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Truly an incredible example and certainly worthy of this list of august examples that God sets before you and me in first or excuse me in Hebrews chapter 11. So that was the poor Gentile widow of Zerphanah. The second woman we have communion this morning, so I won't go there time-wise, but you can find her in 2 Kings chapter 4, being in verse 8 and 4. And that is namely the wealthy Jewish Shunammite woman. And she there has also a son that passes away. And Elisha, who took the mantle from Elijah, is the one used by God there. So that is the second woman whom the author refers to when he says women receive back their dead by way of resurrection. And it's fitting because even if we think of these two Old Testament examples, when we think of the examples in the New Testament where people were raised from the dead, women are central to each of those examples. Uh, In Luke, for example, the widow of Nain's son who was raised by Jesus. Or we can think of Lazarus, who had two godly sisters, Mary and Martha, that were instrumental in that narrative. Or Jairus' daughter, the third person that was raised by Jesus. Or we can even think of Tabitha. In Acts chapter 9, when she was raised to life uh, by Peter, the widows of Joppa rejoiced in her resurrection as well so i love the fact that women are key and central to raising people from the dead back to life in both the old testament and in the new testament and so beloved as we move again from the examples of triumph to the examples of torture this is the hinge point this is the fulcrum between the two is the incredibly powerful doctrine that god is able to raise the dead God is able to put life where there is no life before. We could sum it up in two words. Resurrection, hope. Resurrection, hope. This is the same kind of hope that even flashing forward the Apostle Paul brings out. For example, in Philippians chapter three, where the Apostle Paul writes to this church in Philippi, Philippians three twenty and 21, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. A beloved, this is the key point there, and I'll finish this section on the women of valor with a quote from a godly woman named Susanna Spurgeon. She had a husband named Chuck, but that's not the point here. This is a quote from Susanna Spurgeon. She said this, Never let us give up in despair while we have such a God to trust in. If there's a great mountain of sorrow or difficulty in your way, dear friend, don't be cast down by the darkness of its shadow. Your God can either make a way for you through it or he can guide you around it, or just as easily he can carry you right over it. There's nothing too hard from him. Beloved, dear friend, understand this. In Christ, there are times when God will take you around that great mountain of difficulty, trial, and torture. He may carry you on his shoulders, metaphorically speaking, over it, or perhaps he will sustain you and bless you and give you grace and mercy to weigh directly right through it for his glory and for your eternal joy. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. But back in our text in Hebrews chapter 11, we see the two words and others. And others. This is the significant shift. This is, remember, if you were here last week or if you already know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 are getting ready to be thrown into the furnace to be burned alive. And they give an answer to the king. They demonstrate their trust in God. And what these men said, Daniel 3, 17 and 18, if it be so, They say this to the king. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not. But if not. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not presume upon the unrevealed will of God. They didn't know whether they would go around the trial, over the trial, or right through it and even give up their lives at that point in time. But they had faith. They had trust in God. But if not. The Hebrew here in 11, the Hebrew author's counterpart of but if not is and others. We see that. In verse 35, and we see that at the beginning of verse 36. Yes, there are these tremendous examples of great triumphs in faith for different men and women of valor, but others and others and others. It's the segue between verse 32 to the middle of verse 35 and the middle of verse 35 to the end of verse 38 because, you see, real faith comes in the domain of but if not. Real faith, saving faith, comes in the domain of and others. I don't know God's unrevealed will. I don't know what the future has in store for me. But I trust God. I trust God. So that takes us to the martyrs of valor. From the women of valor to the martyrs of valor. And what we'll see in verse 35 through the middle through 38 are two significant questions that are answered. Uh, One is, what is the world's verdict on Christians and what is, more importantly, God's verdict on Christians. The world's verdict, we see here, let them be tortured, scourged, executed, banished, tortured, and others, the text says, were tortured. The Greek word tortured comes from a wheel-shaped instrument of torture where the offending criminal or person would be stretched out like the skin of a drum and then they would be broken and beaten to death Uh, this is kind of a precursor to the medieval torture of breaking someone on the wheel and it says others were tortured not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection i'll have more to say on this portion of the verse when we come to god's verdict on christians but just right here understand this that the hope of resurrection, the miracle of resurrection is infinitely greater than the providence of rescue. And the word resurrection and rescue are taken right from the text again. The miracle of resurrection is infinitely greater than the providence of rescue. Now, what the author is saying here, what would be immediately in the mind of this original audience of Jewish believers is a reference to the Maccabean martyrs. Uh, It would be taken from a collection of uh, writings called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are not scripture. They are not authoritative. But some of these writings are useful extra-biblical history. And kind of in the same way, I mentioned the Fox's Book of Martyrs before. Someone might even from the pulpit, read a quote from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And that's all well and fine. That's not authoritative. That's not the Word of God. It's something that's useful. So also, the book of 2 Maccabees is useful extra-biblical history. And with some of the wording and the language, the author uses some unique words here that don't appear often or anywhere else in the New Testament, but are from the Second book of Maccabees, chapters 6 and 7, where there is an 90-year-old scribe named Eleazar in chapter 6, and then a mother and seven sons in 2 Maccabees 7 that were arrested, tortured, and murdered by a king named Antiochus Epiphanes. And that is something that is brought out. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes, and this all happened around 167, 166 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, he was an evil, wicked king. He was prophesied by Daniel, In Daniel chapter 11, verses 21 through 35. And historically, what we know, part of this comes directly from the authoritative word of God in Daniel chapter 11. And also some of the extra-biblical sources. But the real man Antiochus Epiphanes attacked Jerusalem's temple. He profaned the sacrificial system. He halted worship. He banned circumcision. For the nation of the Jews and he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple and erected a statue of the pagan god Zeus in the temple. And that was a partial fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied in Daniel eleven thirty one of the abomination of desolation. On a side note, it's a different topic here, but both Daniel and Jesus, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, spoke about the abomination of desolation as still waiting to be completely fulfilled. So there is a future fulfillment of that, but that's a side topic here. But back in the context here, when the author in verse 36 talks about these people that were tortured and they were unwilling to accept the release because they were looking for a hope of a better resurrection. There's no question the original audience would be thinking of 2 Maccabees 6 and 7 with Eleazar and the mother and her seven sons. Now, one thing I'll say here too as well, whether it's the Fox's Book of Martyrs or Second Maccabees, Uh, it's not authoritative it's not scriptural but it is useful and not only do we have a kind of example that you might understand like I said about the foxes book of martyrs but even in scripture we have cases where the superintended, inspired authors of scripture cite extra biblical sources for example the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 verse 28 says in him of course speaking of Christ in him we live and move and exist As even some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are also his offspring. And when Paul is writing to Titus, in Titus 1, verse 12, he says, One of themselves, a prophet, talking about the Cretans, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, end quote. Or Jude, in the short, beautiful letter of Jude, Jude quoted a prophecy from Enoch some 3,500 years before Jude even wrote that. He put it in quotes that is a quote from an extra-biblical book called 1 Enoch. So the whole point here is that we can look at the writing of 2 Maccabee to understand what the audience was thinking about and to understand the gravitas behind that word torture. Because, beloved, in this cushy world we have in 21st century United States of America Gilbert, it's difficult for us to grasp this. So I'm going to begin reading in uh, 2 Maccabees 7, verse 1 about the account of the mother and her seven sons. And by the way, what's taking place here is they're unwilling to bend the knee to Caesar and they're willing to die for their faith because they have resurrection hope. And what transpires is they first... Torture and murder the oldest brother, then the second brother, and then the third all the way down, son by son, brother by brother, until finally the last one, and then they murder and execute the mother. This is what the account reads. It happened also that seven brothers and their mother were arrested and were being compelled by the king, that would be Antiochus Epiphanes, under torture with whips and cords. One of them said, this would be the oldest brother, What do you intend to ask and learn from us? For we're ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our fathers. And the king fell into a rage and gave orders that pans and cauldrons be heated. These were heated immediately. And he commanded the tongue of their spokesman be cut out, and that they scalp him and cut off his hands and feet, while the rest of the brothers and his mother looked on. When he was utterly helpless, the king ordered to take him to the fire, still breathing, and fry him in a pan. The smoke from the pan spread widely, but the brothers and their mothers encouraged one another to die nobly, saying, The Lord God is watching over us, and in truth has compassion on us. After the first brother had died in this way, they brought forward the second for their sport. And the word mocking, pause for a second, in Hebrews 11, the word mocking that we see in our text, it's the same Greek word that is translated for their sport, for their mocking in Second Maccabees. But, we continue, They tore off the skin of his head with their hair. He, in turn, underwent tortures, as the first brother had done. And when he was at his last breath, he said, speaking to the king, You accursed wretch. You dismiss us from this present life. Watch this. But the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life. After him... The third was the victim of their sport or mocking. When it was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue and courageously stretched forth his hands and said nobly, I got these from heaven, and because of God's laws, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again. When he too had died, they maltreated and tortured the fourth in the same way. And when he was near to death, he said, one can't but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. You see, beloved, these references here, these Old Testament believers, these Old Covenant believers had resurrection hope. We have examples. We have another stellar example of an Old Testament, Old Covenant believer, a godly woman that had the same kind of resurrection hope. In John chapter 11, John records the words of the godly Martha who said to Jesus of his her brother Lazarus that had died, who he was four days dead, so his body stinketh? Martha said this: I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Beloved, there was resurrection hope in the mind and heart of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant believer, on the account Second Maccabees seven finishes finally the youngest died in his integrity putting his whole trust in the Lord last of all the mother died after her sons you see Beloved, the reason why I read this in its graphic nature is again to understand the gravitas of the word torture and to recognize that right now, today, perhaps even as I speak, we have brothers and sisters in the world that are but one step away from this kind of sacrifice, this kind of torture and trial of their faith. I had my... Uh, lincoln global group board of directors meeting after the shepherds conference and one of the other lincoln global group board members is a brother of mine named john marie he's from canada he's an egyptian man originally grew up in egypt now living in canada and we we're talking about the oppression that's taking place with some of the godly pastors in canada that refused to bend the knee to Caesar and obeyed the word of God and gathered together and blessed their people and they were arrested and they were even put in prison. Uh, one of them, James Coates, was a speaker at the Shepherds Conference. And I remember what my brother, my Egyptian brother, John Maurice said, not in any way taking away from the significance of what happened with those faithful Canadian pastors, but he said, he goes, they're not, they're not persecuted. I mean, put in jail for 35 days, you get to go home to your family because he's speaking from a context what it means to be a Christian in a Muslim country, where I could tell you story after story, perhaps you've heard of some of men and women that have had their hands cut off, that have been had their heads cut off, had their throats slit for their stand for the faith. So, back here on task in the text. The verdict of the world is tortured, scourged. Uh, we continue verse 36. In the scourge, I'm describing the one word out of a four sequence where we see, and others, and others. Again, that two-word phrase, experience mockings and scourgings. Yes, chains and imprisonments. Uh, The word experience, the Greek word literally means it received the trial of. These others received the trials of mockings, scourgings, chains, and imprisonments. As I mentioned, the mockings—that word is used in Second Maccabees uh, seven verse seven—and another one as well. Or we could go to the infinitely more important word of God, Second Corinthians thirty-six. Sorry, Second Chronicles thirty-six verse sixteen. They continually mocked. This is the nation of Israel. They continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets or scourgings. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 20, verse 2, Pasher had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks. And that word scourging is used repeatedly in the Maccabean account I mentioned before. Chains and imprisonments. Joseph, Micaiah, Hanani. Jeremiah, New Testament Paul, chains and imprisonments, and beloved brothers and sisters we have now are languishing in prison in China in other countries because of their faith. And certainly the original audience of Jewish believers had many contemporaries that could have been applied any of these. So they're tortured, scourged. Uh, The third element of the world's verdict is executed. As we continue this catalog of suffering, it intensifies with three forms of execution. The author says at the beginning of verse 37, they were stoned. That was a common form of execution in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, Jesus himself cited the example of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah. In Matthew 23, verse 35, Jesus said, Upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood. He's saying to the corrupt, immoral religious leadership of Israel, you have persecuted and murdered the men of God and even the women of God that have been sent you. He's speaking here of the men of God. Upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Or we can think of Stephen, the first New Testament, the first New Covenant Martyr Stephen was stoned because of his stand for the truth. And Stephen died in faith. We can think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul also records that he was stoned, but he lived. Now, to be sure, we do know that Paul did offer up his life. He was poured out as a drink offering at the hand of the Roman executioner later from 2 Timothy. But when Paul was stoned, he lived. So again, beloved, one man in the economy of God escapes the edge of the sword. Another man dies at the edge of the sword or the stone in this case. Uh, They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were sawn in two. Now, Many of you have probably heard me say this more than once. I actually had fellowship with a new visitor to our church on Friday, and he was asking me about my background. And at one point I said, well, I've had two senior pastor experiences. My experience on the East Coast was kind of, in my estimation, just the side of getting sawn in two. My beloved Santan Bible Church is kind of just the side of heaven. And being sawn in two, that's where I get this reference. Or I can think of... Uh, Pastor Professor Alex Montoya, and you men from the Shepherd's Conference know him, I remember a chapel where he's like, man, I don't want to die of a heart attack on the golf course. I want to be sawn in two. <laughs> That's where we get this reference. Now, there is no other re- there's no reference in the Old Testament, no other reference in the New Testament of being sawn in two. We do know that this has been among the other horrific forms of torture. This has been one. But, again, for the original audience, they would immediately go towards the prophet Isaiah because there's a very strong tradition in the early church from Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Origen all cite Isaiah as being sawn in two with a wooden saw and it was also prior to the time of Christ the tradition had blossomed up. So that is very likely precisely what the author is talking about here. They were stoned, they were sawn in two and again, at the end or towards the end of verse thirty-seven, they were put to death with the sword. This is very common. Elijah, for example, in a prayer of lamentation to the Lord about what was suffering the men of God at the hands of wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, said, 1 Kings nineteen ten: They have killed your prophets with the sword." Last time, and actually before I do that, uh, Newell the commentator Newell said this, Millions of God's faithful ones have died red with their lifeblood the swords of their persecutor, end quote. If you were here last week, you may remember that in verse 34 I gave an example of one who had in the triumph of faith escaped the edge of the sword, was namely Jeremiah. Jeremiah escaped the sword at the hand of the wicked king Jehoiakim. But Uriah, a contemporary prophet, did not escape. In Jeremiah 26:23, they brought Uriah from Egypt and led him to King Jehoiakim, who slew him with a sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Again, beloved, by faith, one man lived, Jeremiah. By faith, another man, Uriah, died. Or we can think of James, uh, James the Apostle, Acts 12 verses 1 and 2, Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Later on, the same wicked Herod tried to get Peter and kill him, but Peter escaped. So again, one man lives Peter, another man dies James. God is sovereign over all of it. Now, The one method that the author of Hebrew leaves out here that is very common and might come to mind when you think of execution of Christians is being burned at the stake. But at the time of the writing, that wasn't the avant-garde pagan method of execution. But when we think of Christian martyrs, we very likely would think of being burned at the stake. We might think of Thomas Cranmer who when they had him bound and they were getting ready to put him into the fire, he intentionally stretched out his right hand first into the flames because in a moment of weakness, Thomas Cramner had signed a document recanting his faith in Christ. And he wanted the hand that had signed that denial of Christ to be the first that was burned. And so we look back even to him. We remember him. We valorize him for his faith. Now, beloved Dear friend, understand this. Your faith is not the determining factor in whether or not you escape the sword or die by the sword. The determining factor is God's sovereign will. Both escaping the edge and being put to death of the sword are part of God's sovereign good plan. By faith, he sustains his people in life and in death the lord gives and the lord takes away blessed be the name of the lord even over the rent body of the prophet isaiah tortured scourged executed uh, banished so in addition to the violent deaths that we just recorded there's prolonged hardship verse 37 They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins. Uh, This was the attire, this was part of their destitution, of their extreme poverty. This is part of how Elijah was known in 1st excuse me, 2 Kings 1, eight. Elijah the Tishbite is a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. In fact, it's very likely that when the mantle of Elijah was passed to Elisha, that was this sheepskin, this hairy garment that was passed on. It's the same type of garb that we see with John the baptizer, John the forerunner that had a garment made out of hair. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And the point here is these men of valor or even women of valor were continually afflicted, ill-treated by their fellow countrymen, the very ones for whom they ministered, for whose blessing and whose well-being and shalom they were seeking, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the grounds, the text continues. These are all places of solitude where Also, we kind of see that the attitude of the world is to banish these men of faith. Deserts, caves. We read in 1 Kings 18, verse 4, that Obadiah took 100 prophets and hid them by 50s in a cave. Uh, Elijah himself in 1 Kings 19, verse 9, came there to a cave and lodged there. These are places of solitude. There is a loneliness there. Beloved, understand this. You may at times, you may be lonely, but you are never, you are never alone. Jesus Christ, who was perfected in his suffering, is your lifelong companion for your joy, your faithful companion in life. So, that is the world's verdict on Christians. Tortured, scourged, executed, banished. What's God's verdict? Approved and resurrected. Approved. Look at the beginning of verse 38. Parenthetical statement. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Men and women of whom the world was not worthy. That's God's assessment. That's God's verdict. That's God's approval. F.F. Bruce had this choice quote. He said, They were outlawed as people who were unfit for civilized society. The truth was, civilized society was unfit for them. God here is elevating the spiritual stature of these men, of these women. He's saying, he's reminding, God is telling us that King Ahab can't be measured against Elijah. King Herod is no match for John the baptizer, John the forerunner, though he would have his head separated That is no match. By faith, believers, you, beloved, by faith, you tower above the rest of the world. The greatest, powerful, the most successful, the richest. Denzel Washington, the actor. um, I don't know much about his theology, but I know two things. I know that Denzel Washington, the actor, professes Christ. And I know this incredibly (laughs) successful actor has been married to the same (laughs) wife for 40 years. He said this, quote, I'd rather stand with God and be condemned by the world than to stand with the world and be condemned by God. End quote. Choice words. You see, beloved, by its guilty hostility to the truth, the unbelieving world hunts these heroes of the faith. But their nobility and integrity shine forth all the more brilliantly against the world's dark hatred of the truth. And in a world darkened and depraved and degraded by sin they truly you and i by god's grace and mercy truly are the light that's why the apostle john said in first john two seventeen, the world is passing away and its lusts but the one who does the will of god abides forever that's the resurrection hope that the Maccabean martyrs had, that the Apostle Paul, Jeremiah, Joseph in the pit, Joseph in the pit, in the prison, the palace, all had that faith and trust in God. So God's first element verdict is approved. Second is resurrected. Back in verse 35 at the end, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection, that they might obtain a better resurrection this continues this motif this theme that we see continually as a powerful thread through this sermonic epistle of hebrews the infinite superiority of christ that he is the better priesthood the better hope the better covenant the better ministry the better sacrifice the better possession the better city the better country Later, in chapter 12 and 13, he'll be the better blood. Right here, he is the better resurrection. It is the better resurrection. You see, going back to the women of valor and the final act of the acts of valor that we see of the women receiving the dead back by the resurrection, the son of the poor Gentile widow of Zarephath and of the wealthy Jewish Shunammite woman, Their sons were raised back to life from the dead, but in due course of time, died again. Because escaping the difficulties, escaping the trials, escaping the tortures is just a temporary measure. That's why, again, the miracle of resurrection is infinitely better than the providence of release. And more to the point here, the miracle of resurrection is greater than the miracle of mere resuscitation. To only die again. And those Maccabean martyrs that are the original audience source of reference there were looking to the final resurrection, which would clothe. And that's what Paul looked forward to. That's in Philippians 3. That's what you and I look forward to. That's what my beloved Margie looked forward to as she traveled through her journey of torture of cancer. Is that resurrection where our bodies would be clothed in immortality and the hope of resurrection blaze and burn brightly before their eyes a rising to the endless life of the age to come and all these men and women of great valor then and the ones we know were willing to suffer in the present because they believed god's promise for the future they'd never seen it but they heard it in the word of god and they believed it by faith that is the message of the gospel And so, they remain faithful unto death. Don't flinch. You're going to get those eyes back. You're going to get that tongue back. You're going to get those hands back. That's why Justin Martyr said, Remember, brothers and sisters, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. They can't hurt us. So, how are we supposed to live like these? How are we supposed to die like these? These. Understanding that faith goes way beyond what the world can offer and what the world can take. Faith says, if I've got it all, God is better. If I lose it all, God is better. In the midst of suffering, Lord, you say, Lord, I don't. You might not, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why I'm in this trial. I don't understand why I'm losing my spouse. I don't know why I lost my job. I don't understand why my children won't talk to me. But you are God. The hidden things belong to you. And that is sufficient for me. Beloved, faith sees the invisible. Faith hears the inaudible. Faith touches the intangible. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the danger is if our faith ends halfway through verse 35, if our understanding of faith stops at the middle of verse 35, we're doomed because the coward runs from the battle that God would have him fight. I remember when my beloved Margie was first diagnosed with cancer, we had a time of prayer over in the the little building, the community building by the church. A number of people, the moms were there and and, uh, Brittany Uh, the cross were there the Palins were there the Palacios were there and I remember my beloved Margie said she felt like God had given her this cancer on a silver platter beloved there is dear friend there is resurrection hope in the gospel there is hope for any man or woman that would turn to Christ come to Christ ask to be forgiven for your wretched sin and to be adopted into the family of God if you cry out to Christ if you trust in him alone by faith and alone he would receive you to himself and all these good promises are signed sealed and guaranteed for you dear friend that is the gospel message and that is what all of us who are in christ remember and celebrate even now as we approach the communion table please join me as we go to the lord in prayer lord god we praise you and thank you lord we thank you for the beauty of salvation, of the power of faith. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Your divine sovereignty and our human responsibility. Dear Lord Jesus, even now as we come to the table, we remember the great price, the great suffering, great torture, the the physical torture that none of us can imagine and the spiritual and emotional torture that you suffered on our behalf. We praise you and thank you for that. And we thank you for the gift of salvation that you give to us. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we do this thing. Amen.